Isaiah chapter 60. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 60, we've been moving through the book of Isaiah. We are really coming down the next two weeks, probably we will be finishing this book. I have, though, been looking forward to chapter 60. Um, In the flow of Isaiah, I think chapter 60, in some sense, answers a really important so what question. And what I mean by that is we've seen in particular from chapter 40 on, God has been proclaiming this message of hope. Yahweh has been speaking to his people and saying, there is comfort in that I am sending a servant and there will be redemption and there is forgiveness and hope and the servant will come and be the one true sacrifice for sin. This servant comes as the redeemer. He will give himself in the place of sinners. He will come as the righteous warrior who defeats the power of sin and death. And he will come as the king who sits on the eternal throne of David. And so all of this has been promised in these chapters. And and to that then, I think we rightly ask, so now what? What what is our response? We, We are seeing the work of God And so what does he call us to? And I want to suggest to you that we who have been redeemed by the Lord, who have been delivered from the bondage of sin, who live as citizens of his kingdom, are now called to respond to that. And and I I want to think of this in terms of of a vision. What, What should be our vision as God's people? What does life and ministry look like for us? And I think we'll see some of that here In Isaiah 60, I'm going to read the first three verses just to get us started. Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising." In Isaiah chapter 60, there are two sets of commands. There's a lot of descriptive um, language that we'll see, but there are two sets of imperative verbs. One is in verse 1, arise, shine. So there's the command to God's people. And then the next one is in verse 4, and that's lift up your eyes all around and see. I want to come back to the arise, shine one from verse one in a few minutes. But I, and, and I do that because I, I think that, that set of commands, arise and shine, rests on the ground of the, the commands in verse four and what follows, where it says, look up and see. God is, is calling his people to, to pay attention, to lift their eyes and to see these things that he wants to show us, that he wants us to see. And when we see these things, then our response is to the command in verse 1, to arise and shine. So I'm going to start with verse 4. There are seven things. You see it in the notes there that you have. Um, I'll just encourage you by letting you know that I won't spend the same amount of time on each of the seven. So if the first one seems exceptionally long, don't time that one and go, oh boy, six more of these. We're going to be here a while. The other ones get shorter as we go along. All right. Verse four, lift up your eyes all around and see the two commands, lift and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. First thing God wants us to see is how he is drawing people from 
all nations and all ethnicities, and he is drawing them to himself. He is drawing them to come to him. He wants us to see this miracle of God's work that that has been up until this point rooted largely amongst the Jewish people in and around Jerusalem. He's now saying, look and see they are coming from the ends of the earth. See this. Now, let, let, me, let me just take an aside real quick, and that's what will make this first point just a little longer. When, when we get to Isaiah chapter 60, the commentators and the theologians spend a great deal of time on this chapter saying, when is this talking about? He is giving a vision of a gathering of people, and he is talking about peace and security that fills the land and the judgment of enemies. When does all of this take place? It certainly points well beyond the immediate time that Isaiah is writing. Isaiah is writing around 700 BC. And if you're a Jewish reader listening to Isaiah's prophecy in 700 BC, you, you may well see this as referring to something he has already talked about that is imminent. A century from now, God will use the Babylonian army to judge his own people for their own idolatry and sin. And they will come and they will tear down the walls of Jerusalem and they will take the people captive. But we've already seen in Isaiah, the promise that follows that is God will restore his people. He will bring them back from captivity. And so there's a sense in which you might read this and see these people coming from afar and say, ah, this is the return from captivity. There's much more here. You're going to see as we go through the text. There's much more than just that scene, and that scene has actually already been dealt with earlier in Isaiah. It sounds in large part when we read Isaiah 60 like this is end times in terms of the return of Christ. This is the second coming when Christ establishes his kingdom, and there's certainly elements here in Isaiah chapter 60 that you'll see that still await ultimate fulfillment. We, we have not known worldwide peace of the kind that he seems to describe here. So there is still stuff that points forward to the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. But I, I want to encourage you that Isaiah 60 is not purely limited to a futuristic interpretation, that it speaks to us as believers as God's people today. And I say that in large part because of those commands of verse one, to arise and shine, to, to be God's light within the culture where you are. There's very much present tense commands for God's people to live in light of all of this. And, and frankly, the, when, when verse one speaks about his, his light, we, we read this here, this light dawning on the people we can certainly tie that right into the first coming of Jesus Christ. Remember in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when it speaks of the true light of God coming into the world, who is Jesus Christ. The, the true light has come, and so there's a sense in which um, the first coming, the incarnation of Christ, is in view here. It also foreshadows, in some sense, the, the birth of the church at Pentecost, when Jewish people from areas outside of Judah and Galilee, all of these neighboring areas have come, and they are, they are now learning the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are being filled with the Spirit, and they are going back to these other nations and groups. And so the, my, my point is this, that Isaiah 60 is really one of these passages that we sometimes describe as sort of already but not yet in terms of fulfillment. There's a sense in which we're already seeing this unfold, but the fullness of it is still to come. It's not yet completely fulfilled, and that will be at the return of Christ. My, my main caution to you is that we don't get ourselves wrapped up in trying to specifically pigeonhole Isaiah 60 for a specific date or time or period and miss the emphasis of what God is teaching us here as people who are called to stand up and shine. For 2,000 years, 
The church of Jesus Christ has been watching the fulfillment of this first thing that God says to see, and that is the nation's gathering, the nation's coming. We are part of that. The fact that we are believers in Jesus Christ in the Jewish Messiah is evidence of God drawing people to himself from nations and ethnicities, and we are seeing that work being done. We've spent the month of January getting updates on missions work that's going on in Spain and Southeast Asia and Ethiopia and Australia and, and the Philippines. And, and, and just hearing the amazing work that God has done, and that only scratches the surface of, of the marvel of God bringing people to himself, drawing them into his kingdom. And so he says to us, lift up your eyes and see, stand in awe of this work of these people who are coming to me. All right, verse five. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. God wants us to see him first drawing people from all of the nations and ethnicities, but second, he wants us to see them coming to worship him with their full heart, soul, mind, and being. This is a picture of, of people who are, are bringing everything. So, several times Isaiah 60 describes the people of, uh, of the nations bringing their wealth, livestock, uh, precious stones, uh, spices, or some of the things that it mentions here. And, and the idea is to, to see all kinds of riches here and saying, they're not coming empty-handed. They are coming and they are bringing to the Lord as they come the objects of worship. They are coming to bring their praise of him. They are coming to put their lives before him in, in service and to glorify him. It, it, these riches are not, it, 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 if the picture here, and, and, and certainly there's an element of this end times picture where they are coming to, to Jerusalem, the picture is not here of them coming to build up Israel's coffers or, or, or to supply Israel's military in some way. These are praise offerings for Yahweh. These are glad people wanting to bring sacrifices to the Lord. They are not coming to pay tribute or taxes to Jerusalem. These, think of the wise men as they come to the infant Jesus and, and all they want to do is bring these gifts, these offerings to worship him. That's, what's, that's what we're seeing here. This is not a revival of sort of the Old Testament sacrificial system. These are Gentiles who have been delivered from darkness and long to give praise to Yahweh. In fact, verse 6 speaks of praise there. It, it, it's praises plural. It's speaking of many different people and many different voices that are all coming to, to exalt his name. One writer puts it this way. The picture here given is that of Gentiles converted to Christ who bring all that they have and devote it to his service. They've come from the coastlands, they've come from the faraway places, and they have come into the city of God to honor him. And Yahweh gladly receives their offerings. You see that there when it speaks of, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar in verse 7. What a great picture of God receiving their sacrifices and receiving their offerings, and they have come to worship. Think of the very practical level. Think of the joy we have when we have baptisms. And, and, and someone comes 
and they share the story of how they were lost, they were separated from Christ, they were whatever their situation in life, and then Christ saved them through his gospel, and, and, and they were forgiven, and we, we celebrate in that moment. That's, that's what God is longing for us to see here, his drawing of these people and of them giving themselves to him in worship. All right, verse eight, next one. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. Coastlands is kind of an island term. Not, lands along the coast could mean islands as well. For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. There's silver and gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. He wants us to see that this drawing of Gentiles is his work that this is, this is God doing this. And so Isaiah does this by turning people's attention to the west, to the Mediterranean, and, and, and they look out at the horizon and they see, is that, is that clouds forming? Or that, is that a flock of doves that's coming in our direction? And no, it's, it's ships coming from far away Gentile lands. And they are bringing people who are coming to the Lord. And he says here that they come, and he describes really two reasons in, in, in verse nine. They come for the name of the Lord your God. The name meaning all that he is. They come because they have heard of the Lord and they, they have got a sense for his character and his power and his love and his grace. And they are coming for the name of your Lord. But it also says there, and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. There's a sense in which the very people of God are the sort of magnetic display that are drawing these people because God is beautifying his people as they live out his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. That sets forth this attraction that is part of what God uses to draw people to himself. We're going to come back to this again later, but it's, it's his righteousness flowing through his people that becomes something that draws others to him to ultimately glorify him. There's, there's something beautiful in that. And it, down in verse 15, it speaks of, Yahweh says of his people, though you were forsaken and hated by others, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You've, you are amongst the despised of the world, but here's my work in you, and he uses the word majestic. And the Hebrew word has the same connotation, has the same meaning as exalted. And, and that's interesting because if you go back to the first 20 chapters or so of Isaiah, the, the idea of exaltation is seen frequently in Isaiah, and it's, it's seen in terms of a contrast. Man trying by his own strength, his own willpower to exalt himself especially leaders through their militaries, trying to arrogantly, foolishly exalt themselves as being godlike versus what he's trying to show us in Isaiah is there is only one who is majestic. There is only one who is worthy of exaltation. And no man achieves that. But then you come to Isaiah 60, verse 15, and he says, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. God exalting his people. The fact that 
majestic, mighty, holy God would work in his people in such a way that we would be vessels of his righteousness and his holiness and his grace. He's exalting us for the very purpose of bringing people to himself, to draw them to see him and his work in vessels like us. All right, verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath... I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. Fourth thing the Lord wants us to lift up our eyes and see is how his justice is perfect. Verse 10 what he's emphasizing there is the truthfulness of his justice, and he's reminding them of what he has prophesied about Babylon. When, when the people's idolatry and sin rises to this level of judgment, God will essentially tear down their walls by use of the Babylonian army. God will make his people to be defenseless and carry them into captivity as punishment from, from which he will deliver them. But, but that's really what he's bearing in mind here when he's talking about the, the building of walls, but saying, for in my wrath, I struck you. Sin is serious. And so even to his own people, he's not saying this is about all those people who are coming that somehow need to be rescued from their sin. They do, but he's reminding his own people that God is serious about justice, that he does not ignore it, that there must be a price that is paid because there's this incredible reversal in verse 10. In my wrath, I struck you, but in my favor, I have had mercy on you. And that's when when we should pause, having looked up and seen this and said, how, how is that so? And it's so because of what we've read in Isaiah, because a servant is coming. And a servant will bear our iniquities on himself and will be made sin so that he might die in our place. And therefore, the God who rightly judges sin can be merciful to those who trust in him. He can save them from their sin. That leads us then to the, the fifth thing that's right within this passage, and that is God wants us to see how he gives peace and security to his people. You see it in verse 11, your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall be not they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. It, it, it doesn't necessarily compute to us in, in our culture that the city gates are swung open, but what he's saying at minimum for us is the, the, the doors are unlocked, your, your, your front door stays wide open, the ring camera is shut off, you, you're not on guard. And he's saying to his people, there is coming a day of peace and security when the gates will be open all the time, even at night, even when an enemy might dare to, to sneak in. And he's saying, I am promising you this. I care for my people. Think of the ways in which we, we guard ourselves because of the reality of sin. We have to guard our own hearts and, and deal with the, the sin that comes from our own hearts. We, we, we guard and protect our children sometimes from the stuff that's, that's in the world. And he's saying, no, there's, there's coming a day of peace and security. But I, I'll take this a step closer to our own application and say, the great shepherd cares for his sheep. Even now we belong to him and we are secure in him. In Isaiah 41.10, the Lord said, fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, the ultimate fulfillment of this is at the return of Jesus when he establishes his kingdom. I'm not suggesting you leave your front door open tonight and turn off the ring. But I am telling you that in Christ, there's nothing that's going to happen to you that is somehow outside of his care. There's no way that if you are trusting in him, he is going to lose you or let you go. He holds you fast. Your warrior king is your defender. And so Isaiah 60, 18 says, Violence shall be no more heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. We need to remember that the righteousness of God, the, the, the right standing, the perfection of God, ultimately that, that it, it is that righteousness that saves us from our greatest enemy, which is sin. We are already secure from the greatest opponent if you are trusting in Christ because we are saved from the power of sin and death. And the night before his crucifixion, Jesus said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And, and that leads him then to pray for his disciples, for you and I. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Our hope for peace and security cannot rest in people or things around us. It ultimately must rest in the Lord, in Christ and in his, his gospel. He is our peace. Our lives are in his hands, and he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Yahweh wants his people to see this, see the strength of his arm, see that he will judge all the evildoers, that there is nothing that can thwart God's will for us. There's nothing that can stop the growth of his church. He is building his church. Two more things in Isaiah 60. Drop down to verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, for your moon, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 60 started with God's glory dawning. That's what we read in the first three verses of Isaiah 60, the, the spread of the dawn. Now, now think of this. This is hard for us to picture because we cannot imagine what it's like to actually live in, unless you've experienced blindness, we cannot imagine what it is to, to live in ongoing darkness, to, to not know what the experience of light is. And, and that's what he's picturing here, is the earth is, is consumed, is blanketed in this terrible darkness to the point that we don't know any better. That, that's the point about being lost in sin, is, is we don't we don't embrace the light willingly and run toward it because we don't know that there's something better. We think this is where we are and we're, we're content in some respect there. In the pitch black of night, man's known nothing but darkness. And then the picture he gives here is of the Lord revealing himself. And it's like a sunrise for the first time. It's like you, you've gone down to the beach and it's the first time you've actually watched one of those sunrises come and it's just spectacular when you see this light begin to peek over the surface and then break and it, it, the, the darkness is gone and it's filled with light. And that's what he's saying here is that hope now comes. Despair is away and the nations begin to gravitate toward this light. 
the, the light of, of, of Christ's coming, ultimately we know it, it drives men in one of two directions. Because what it does is it exposes man's sin as well. It shows a holy God and it exposes sin and it either drives people to say, I'd rather run back to the darkness and I'd rather stay there and, and, and stay in what I was and live in my sin or I am going to embrace this light and find forgiveness in Christ. Verse 19 really is, is taking that picture of the rising of the sun in verses one through three and it's now declaring the obvious. Since the light of the glory of God is so great, there is no longer need for sun or moon. Again, ultimate fulfillment of this, the establishment of Christ's kingdom when he returns, and, and the light of the glory of God is more than enough. But again, the Gospel of John tells us that with the coming of Jesus Christ, the darkness, is over, the, the darkness cannot overcome the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. With the coming of Jesus Christ, we see the light of that who delivers, of the one who delivers. And we, we are convicted of our sin and called to run to him. And for we who are be, being redeemed, the light of the brilliance of the glory of Jesus is spectacular beyond our wildest imagination. That's why when, when verse 20 says, your days of mourning shall be ended, he's echoing back to chapter 40, when he said, speak tenderly words of comfort to my people that their warfare is ended and their iniquity is pardoned. Remember that from Isaiah 40? That the coming of comfort is because your sin is forgiven, because there's a redeemer coming who will rescue you and your iniquity will be pardoned. And so the light of the glory of God, as he's picturing it here, is not just some supernatural phenomena that we look at like we do fireworks and go, ooh, ah, that's spectacular. It is, it is captivating because it is a reminder of the fact that we have been taken from darkness, that we who were lost in darkness and content in darkness have now, by God's grace, been delivered from out of that into his marvelous light and his glory by his grace. We are forgiven. Where we were before was death hopeless, and we could not even see this. And now by his glorious grace, we are taken from out of, his, out of this darkness into his light. And that's what he's saying. Lift up your eyes and see this. Our mourning is ended. Verse 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord in its time, I will hasten it. That is, the last statement in, in Isaiah 60 is as if putting the exclamation and the underline, the final period on all this, I've said this, says the Lord, and I will do this. I will accomplish this. Lift up your eyes, and the last thing he wants us to see here, this wonder is that the unrighteous are made righteous that those who are defying God and enemies of God are now made right with God. Sinners being made right with God and now able to have eternal dwelling with him. They're secure in his land, it describes there. They shall possess the land forever. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by him dying for your sins, his right standing, his perfection is now accounted to you when you 
put your trust in him, when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ, you are now credited with the righteousness of Christ. And so your, your sin, your rebellion, your unrighteousness is now exchanged for his righteousness. And so that's why he can now say, your people shall all be righteous. That is, I, I know we know this from the New Testament, but that's a breathtaking statement at this point when Isaiah reveals this, that righteousness will fill your people and we will be his forevermore. <clears throat> Lift up your eyes. Look and see all that the Lord has done. Marvel at the wonder of him drawing people to himself from every nation, every tongue, people who will come and worship him with their whole being. Look up and see how his great name and his righteousness now flowing through his people draw people to himself. The majesty of who he is flows through his people and draws nations. Look up and see how the justice of God is perfect. It's not compromised. It's not sold short in any way. God saves. His standard of righteousness to forgive sinners is met in Christ, and his justice is satisfied. Look up and see the peace and security that you dwell in. Despite all of the world's troubles, despite the things that you are facing today, if you are trusting in Christ, you are held in the arms of a strong and good Savior, and he will not forsake you, and he will not let you go, and evil will not draw you away from him and out of his grasp. Look up and see the majesty of his everlasting light and marvel at what it is to be rescued from darkness into that. That, that all is the ground on which the commands of verse 1 stand. And, and I, I, I want us to just hold on to all that, look up and see this, because that is the basis for what he says in verse 1 when he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of God has risen upon you. This is not a command to wake up. Isaiah has already commanded them to wake up. God has done that back in chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. He commanded them to wake up when they were lost in the stupor of sin. They were under God's wrath for their sin. They were lost in darkness. And he says, wake up. Chapter 52, he repeats it. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. To a people who are trapped in sin and under the judgment of God, the command is to wake up. Why? Because of what he's about to reveal. This is, those are chapter 51 and 52. And what's he about to reveal in chapter 53? I will send my servant, the lamb, and he will give himself in your place. He will suffer for you. He will bear your sins. There will be this exchange of your sins being placed on him, and he will give to you in place of that forgiveness and life. And so the call in 51 and 52 is, sinner, you who are, you who are trapped in your sin, wake up, there's good news. There is a Savior coming, and the Savior will redeem, and he will give life. Wake up to that. Hope has come. Redemption will be consummated. So when we get to chapter 60... It's not wake up and see the gospel. It's now speaking to, to people who have been redeemed. It's speaking to those who are trusting in the Lord. And it's saying to you now who have 
received his redemption, who have been delivered from sin because of what he's done, it's time to stand up. It's time to arise. You have been awakened by the grace of God. You have been given life and forgiveness, and this is the call to action. You are no longer crushed under the weight of sin. So stand up. Arise. Shine. That, that Shine, the verb, has the idea of become light. We've already seen God's light is, is supreme. There's no other need for light, but that doesn't lessen the force of the command. In fact, the point of verse 1 is now, now you who have been redeemed, arise and shine the light of the glory of God. Live out who you are in Christ. Live differently. Let your life be a display of His majesty. Stand up to that. Friends, this is as missional a call as you will find anywhere in Scripture. A call to the body of Christ to not stay in one place and just wait for people to come to them, but to stand up and shine, to reflect the glory of God, to live out his truths. Stand boldly, rise and shine. And, and I would say to you throughout this passage, there's been this corporate sort of feel to all of this. It's, it's individuals who are being redeemed but it's talking about people who are gathering and they are coming. In fact, I said in verse six, it's plural, the praise is there. The, the, the people are coming from the nations and gathering and shining brightly, not only as individuals, but as the corporate body of believers. As we together, Grace Bible Church, this is our charter to arise and shine. This is what we've been called to do in Lorton and Fairfax County and Northern Virginia is to be distinct but not huddling in and staying separate, but rather standing up in a way that we're not afraid, but we're bold for our Savior, and we are declaring His glory. Arise and shine. Think about the, the implications of what we've read. The maker of the heavens and the earth has drawn you to Himself. By His grace and the sacrifice of His servant, He has made you for this purpose, that you would worship Him, that you would love others that you would glorify him, and that you would display his righteousness, his goodness to the world. How can we not stand up and reflect his glory? The Holy One has himself become sin so that my sin would be punished in him. He has become sin so that I might receive his righteousness and the demands of his justice would be satisfied. I have been pardoned. Because of that, how can I not choose to stand and shine and glorify him and reflect his goodness? In, in Christ, we have the promise he will never leave us or forsake us. So it's not a, it's not a trouble-free life, but it's secure because he keeps you. He holds you. You belong to him. What are we afraid of? We live in a culture that we, we are we're bombarded with its hostility and, and we are bombarded with the, the, the threat of being canceled. And the temptation in those situations is to keep our heads down, to, to move low, and to just get through and, and, and get to the end and, and not get crushed in some way by the world around us. And Isaiah is telling his people, stand up where you are. 
Be bold, be unafraid, speak God's truth and the power of God's spirit so that your life burns brightly. We have been delivered into the light of the king of all creation and the world around us is the one that is groping in darkness and we have the opportunity to shine the gospel of Jesus Christ into that. Paul says this to the Corinthians and Corinth is a city that is just filled with immorality and evil and he says to them in the midst of this godless world, 2 Corinthians 4, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul, who was beaten and suffered all throughout his ministry is compelled by the fact that God has said, light must shine into the darkness and I am sending you to stand up, to arise and to shine. Philippians says it this way, be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2.15. Friends, that's our charge. That's our calling. If you are trusting this morning in Jesus Christ as your savior, that is our vision for life and ministry. It is to be people who are willing to stand up here as a local church in Lorton, to stand up and be known that we are committed to the teaching and proclamation of the word of God. We're not ashamed of what the word of God says. And, and not only that, but we believe the word of God has hope for you. And there is light for you and there is forgiveness if you will come to Jesus Christ. Arise and shine. Let's pray. Lord God, this could not be clearer that your mandate for your people is the spread of your fame and glory. And there could not be anything more worthy of our devotion and our energy, our sacrifice and our living than to see your glory and your fame spread further through us. And so we are coming before you praying here as everyone here who is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. And we are, we are convicted as we read passages like this because it is a reminder of all that you have done, all how, how you have rescued. And Father, there's the, the temptation to feel like we've fallen short. We haven't, there's been too many times when we haven't stood. We haven't reflected the glory of Christ in situations. And so we're, we need to be reminded again from your word that you are a gracious, loving, forgiving God, and that this command is for us now in this moment to come to you in our weakness, in our struggles, and to plead for your help that we would stand, that we would be bold, that we would love your word and speak your word, and by the power of your spirit, we would live your word, be different, and love our neighbor sacrificially. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is saying, I, I am not there. I, I am not sure about this. I pray this morning that, that they would see that the, the hope that is proclaimed in Isaiah 60 all rests on the coming of one man, the very son of God who took on flesh and who lived a sinless life and who was then crucified on the cross, not for anything he had done, but to take upon himself the sins of people, that of man, that he would take our sins on himself and then bear the punishment for those sins that we deserve. The agony and the suffering of Jesus on the cross is the agony and suffering of one who has been made sin so that he might experience the wrath of his father and so that our sins would be judged in him.
And in that death, Jesus Christ defeated sin's grip, its power, crushing it. And by rising from the grave, crushed the power of death. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's at this place, I pray that your spirit would compel them in this very moment to say, Lord Jesus, I have have not been near you. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I pray that you would save me. I, I turn to you and I trust in you. I believe that you are the Savior who will rescue me. Lord, I pray that in this moment you would save, that we would, we would have the very joy, as you call these onlookers to, to see you drawing people to yourself who would come and say, I, I want to be a worshiper of yours. I want to give myself and all that I have to, to follow you and to know this joy and this peace. Lord, help us as a church, help Grace Bible Church to not merely exist in this community, to not be an outpost that believers would run to, but to be a light that is clearly in this neighborhood, shining the light of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ amongst our neighbors. Help us to do that by your grace and strength. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.